With Elevate 150 from Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, you can grow financially stronger and so can Redeemer Radio. Visit NotreDameFCU.com slash Elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. We have to imagine a people so deeply committed to their neighbors that they would risk their lives for them and risk their lives perhaps not even to save them, but simply to be present and perhaps to speak to them of another life. As we imagine that, we begin to see the enormity and beauty of our own vocation as Christians. This is at the very heart of what it means to be pro-life. Those are the words of Holly Taylor Kuhlman, who invites and challenges us as Christians to heed the central call of the gospel, to provide care to the suffering, to offer hospitality to those in need, and to build communities that are indeed pro-life through and through. Dr. Taylor Kuhlman is Assistant Professor of Theology at Providence College, where she also serves as Chair of the Department of Theology. She is here to talk with me about foster care in particular, which was the subject of an essay she published in our Church Life Journal and a call she has heeded in her own life. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life in collaboration with Spoke Street Media Network. Hi, Taylor Kuhlman. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Holly, I wanted to start our conversation today from that essay I mentioned that you published in the Church Life Journal back in February of 2020. It had the title, Amidst Plagues, The Church's Call to Foster Care and More. Now, this amidst plagues is not in any way hyperbolic. You actually set your particular call to foster care within the context of these rampant plagues in the early centuries of the church before turning our attention to today. I was wondering, could you tell us about these early times of plagues and the response of Christians during those times? Sure. You know, it's actually a little bit hard to suss out the precise historical detail here. I have to say that for any of the historians listening. But it does seem clear that there were devastating plagues that appeared in the Roman world. We would describe it as being the late Roman period, between the second and the sixth centuries. These took the lives of as many as one-third of the total population, something that I'm sorry to say now we can start to envision more what Mm -hmm. that would mean. It means personal loss. It means something like societal chaos, frankly. There's one historical note at the height of one of these plagues around the year 250. There's a report that 5,000 people a day were said to be dying only in Rome, in the capital city of Rome. And they were painful, difficult deaths. So we know that that happened. And we also know that those Christian communities, those early Christian communities, understood themselves in important ways to have a clear call in that context, which was to do what we now call, phrase that's popular now, running toward danger. They did not engage as a whole in the same kind of self-protection that some other communities did and that we could certainly make sense of, Mm -hmm. but they stepped forward and cared for those who were suffering in whatever way they could, even when in that case, they 
certainly did not have a cure yeah. per se, present to those who were suffering and doing what they could. So the running towards was not necessarily to fix, to cure, as you're saying, but sometimes the running towards was merely to be with, right? Absolutely. This seems to be the case that both of those would be involved. We know now sometimes tending to people's symptoms mm -hmm. does actually allow them to survive. But somehow, and this is, this is the way that I would say it in the way that caught my attention, somehow that community was formed at that time to understand this to be a central call for them to give themselves to those who were in pain. Yeah. You know, I was caught by you. You offered a, a few excerpts, quotes from early Christian leaders at that time, one of whom was Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage. And I just want to read this quote that you gave us from his writings. He wrote, what a great thing it is, how pertinent, how necessary, that pestilence and plague, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out the righteousness of each one and examines the mind of the human race to see whether they who are in health tend to the sick, whether those who are in health tend to the sick. I wondered if you might kind of comment on that idea that Cyprian is here articulating as a kind of enduring measure of what it means to be pro-life and, in fact, to heed the gospel call. Like you were saying, this, this was something that seemed to just be right at the heart of how these Christians understood their own identity, this running toward danger. So can you speak about that a little bit from what Cyprian is saying? Sure. I think there are at least a couple central dynamics here. One is this long-standing element that we see in Christianity, something that really was inherited in an important way from the messages of some of the prophets long before, this sense of an indispensable kind of concern with those around us. One of the things that I find most terrifying about some of the prophetic messages is the way in which they rule out apathy. Mm -hmm. They rule out, I mean, let me put it a little bit more strongly and concretely. They rule out just trying to get through your day, find a parking place and, and pay the mortgage and things that I think we all can understand. <laughs> and certainly uh, I myself make sense of too, but without, without concern, without love for the people around us, who are vulnerable and who are suffering, we have missed the mark. So certainly I myself understand concern for unborn human beings to be connected to that concern. And just one other thing I will say too, I think we could also point to that early Christian context and the way in which Christianity introduced something really new. That's this. The concern there, it's clear in the gospel is a concern for each individual, no matter how small, no matter how voice, mm -hmm. no matter what role they play in society, et cetera. And that is something of a revolution, honestly, that we see in those early Christian communities. I love how plainly you put that, that what they rule out is just getting through your day. Because apathy sounds like it's a kind of choice and it's a sort of hardening of a will. But the just getting through your day is kind of like the neutral position, right? Like it's, you're not doing any harm. You're just trying to kind of take care of the things that need to be taken care of in your own life. But for the Christian, and this follows upon the prophetic message of the prophets for Judaism— that is not an option. There is no third way. There's only the way of tending to the least of mercy. Or there's the other way. And the other way is the way of being complicit with death, right? You know, in the episode of Jesus curing the man with the withered hand, 
in the beginning of that episode, it tells us that the, the Pharisees were already plotting against him. It's basically the whole thing's a setup. But Jesus asked them the question, I'm paraphrasing probably, is it right to heal, to do good on the Sabbath or to kill? And then it says they were silent, and that is what inflames and enrages Jesus. It's their silence. They do nothing, right? So I'm thinking of that here in response to what you're saying. Exactly. I mean, that is the challenge. And, you know, I put it in that very concrete everyday way because I mean to be sympathetic with how hard this is because it's so hard for me. And I feel in so many ways, you know, one small way that I would say it, maybe changing the context just a little bit is to say, this is a challenge for each individual Christian. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Really think through this, take this to heart. But when we start asking what could really affect a change, what could really move us toward what many of us have learned to call a culture of life, then I think it's essential that we ask it not only in the individual context, but for us as a community. Um, I am just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And the more isolated I am, the more <laughs> that's true. But the more I know that I'm part of a community, where I have support, where I have connections, et cetera, et cetera, the more I think I have an overflow of energy, the more that I have brothers and sisters who can prod me toward love and the more I'm able to do that. So I think we have to ask both questions really straightforwardly. Absolutely. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Holly Taylor Kuhlman, Assistant Professor and Chair of the Department of Theology at Providence College. We're talking about the Christian call to tend to the sick. Now, as we move the focus, or as you move the focus, especially in your essay, from the ancient context of these plagues in the early Roman society to the present day, I imagine most of us who are listening would likely expect that you were focusing in your essay on the plague today that we would call COVID. But you published this essay actually on Valentine's Day of 2020, which means you finished writing it a little bit before that. COVID was, if anything, just a blip on the radar. We didn't have the consciousness of that. So the plague that you actually draw our attention to in the essay is the ongoing and often hidden plague of the opioid crisis, especially throughout the United States, hidden in many communities, but running rampant in these communities. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular plague of the opioid crisis and how it is especially affecting children? Because that'll bring us to foster care, which you do draw our attention to. Absolutely. I have to say, even I find it a little crazy when I look back at that date. If I were a superstitious person, I'd be really careful, really careful about what headlines I was adopting, what title I was adopting. Here's Holly calling forth the plagues, more plagues. Thank you, Holly. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, right. You know, there are some really striking numbers on the opioid crisis out there. Those numbers, we don't have any reason to believe that they have improved Mm -hmm. over the course of the current challenge with the pandemic. I have a couple of those facts listed in my essay in 2017, about 1.7 million people in the United States lived with addiction to prescription opioid pain relievers. And there's a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions to be asked there about medical treatment, about our medical system as a whole. But for me, I really think it's crucial to see this crisis in connection with some of the issues that I was just mentioning. I personally see this opioid crisis 
as in a really important way, a crisis precisely of loneliness, a mm. crisis precisely of disconnection, of people suffering what we could call trauma, which just is what name we give to a situation in which a person faces more than he or she can cope with. What do, you, what do they do next? And so I think we should see that in that light as a symptom of alienation and loneliness. And this certainly, I think, makes sense to to many of us, if not all of us, this increasing, even more hidden problem of rampant loneliness and the ways in which we seek to kind of alleviate that burden. And in as you're pointing out here, one of the ways in which that alleviation seems to be attempted is through the increasing reliance on the relief that these opioids would provide in the short term to allow for some kind of connection. But as you're pointing out, you know, this begins perhaps in loneliness and it is first affecting an individual, but then it ripples out very quickly to affect communities and especially to affect families. And children are the ones who oftentimes bear the greatest consequence and the greatest impact of this addiction and what it does to those who would be able to parent them. So what what is happening to children, especially as they are the sort of secondary, but pretty quickly the primary victims of this opioid crisis? Right. What we see in many ways over the broad swath of the United States is children who are suffering from a lack of care. Mm-hmm happen in a number of different ways with parents who are struggling with an addiction and perhaps we could say not at a hundred percent. I'm not sure any of us parents are at a hundred percent all the time. But <laughs> I'm still waiting for that day. I wonder what I would be like. Exactly. But present, present to their yeah. children and doing the best that, that they can. However, I've just become keenly aware as somebody who has done foster care in the past that when we're talking about children, especially when we're talking about young children, there does come a moment where it's crucial that someone step in and provide immediate care for those children, even as I would argue, we also have an obligation to their parents. Mm. I can't remember if the essay mentions this explicitly, but one thing that I want to say right away in framing foster care and the work of foster care is a reminder that the goal there is always the healing and reunification of a family. That is always our primary goal, even when that goal is not pursued as well as we could, and even when it's not met. So you mentioned here the sort of urgent, immediate need that children have here, which the foster care relationship, the foster parent would help to meet that need. What does this call forth from those who are preparing, especially to be foster parents? What is required of them? And maybe that has to do with some of the the legal and logistical steps, but I'm thinking especially about their own kind of formation, preparation, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Like, what does this call forth from the foster parent? Yeah, the short answer to that, I think, is a lot. Yes, I would not want to sugarcoat this. It's a demanding call. I often speak to people who are considering foster care. I hope that everybody who is listening today will Mm -hmm. take that question to heart, ask whether it's possible this could be the vocation for them. When I'm talking to those folks, I note two things. One is education. That sounds kind of 
hard to make more sense of, but (laughs) there is a wealth of information out there, a wealth of gathered wisdom of practices that are in fact effective as we try to step in with kids who have suffered from trauma and in some cases even harder to address complex developmental trauma. So what doesn't make sense in this case is to try to go it alone and reinvent the wheel. Just got to plunge into that world and draw on that gathered wisdom. But the other thing that I always say and not disconnected from the things that we've said already is community. You have to find your village if you are going to take on this work. And that is true in a number of different ways. People need, if they're going to serve as foster parents, they need somebody they can call at night. They may well need actually organized respite care in order to maintain their own spiritual and psychological health. And they need just practical community, something that is missing actually for far too many of us. Mm -hmm. They need a community where they can say, does anybody have a a winter coat in this side? Because I woke up and this, you know, they think the child grew four inches overnight. (laughs) Those kind of things that any parent I think can identify with. Somebody you can call becomes, it's, it's important for any parent and it becomes absolutely crucial in these kinds of very demanding parenting situations. Mm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Holly Taylor Kuhlman, assistant professor and chair of the Department of Theology at Providence College. We're talking about the church's call to foster care and more. Would you mind, Holly, speaking a little bit about your own experience as a foster parent, you and your husband, Boyd? I don't know if it's appropriate to share stories or just your own how this has impacted you or what this has meant in your life. We'd we'd be really grateful to hear that. Sure. And there is a question here for anybody who is a foster parent or or an adoptive parent, Mm -hmm. the question of where to maintain lines of confidentiality. I myself lean really far toward believing that there's a strong responsibility for adults to protect the confidentiality Mm -hmm. of kids. So, but I can share a couple details. Not all of my children came into our family through foster care, but we did have that experience. And it's really interesting to go back and try to piece that together. We sort of plunged into foster care because when asked, we indicated that we would be open to taking last minute emergency placements. That certainly happens in the foster care system for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes the public agencies have a kid who needs a bed in two hours. Yeah. And you organize your home differently when you say yes to that. That's what we did. And that's what happened. So we, our first foster care placement happened very quickly, very suddenly. And, you know, I'll just say this about it. Maybe I can reflect a little bit more on my experience with it. It was certainly exciting and a little stressful. But I think there is something at the very core of that sudden arrival that has important connections to the arrival of any child. I think anybody who welcomes a child in the most common way, which is to have that child born to them, will probably recognize what I'm talking about. But there is a certain sense of wonder, a certain sense of awe that this whole person has been entrusted Hmm. and to us. And what that 
means. Again, you know, for the Christian tradition, it's very clear what you're looking at in front of you in every single human being is an unfathomable mystery, someone of infinite value. And I really felt that even in the midst of it, while I was trying to decide what to do next and how, how we how we would best organize those first couple of days of settling in, et cetera. And I think it's good to recall that core. Think yeah. about it. I think for myself, I can I can maybe more easily imagine a couple of days in when sort of gotten to know each other a little bit, just being sort of comfortable in your home. But the thing that's hard for me to imagine is that, I don't know, that first night, what do you do first? So the child arrives at your home, young child, teenager, who knows? What do you do first? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, it'll vary sure. depending on the precise circumstances. But it's interesting. I think it really pushes people to get down to the basics, uh-huh. most essential realities, and to do that with a lot of empathy and a lot of concern for the child. So let me just give a couple examples there. For whom this is weirder than for you, by the way, right? Like they're coming into a totally new environment. You have someone that you haven't met coming into the environment you're comfortable in. For whom this is far weirder yeah. and more unnerving. Oh, yeah. And very likely actually triggering sure. uh, path experiences of transition, upheaval, et cetera. So yes, absolutely. I can't overemphasize that enough that the job of parents, again, this is actually always the job of parents, (laughs) really emphasized here is to empathize with the child, see it from his or her perspective. So a couple things, I think it helps to be really straightforward and honest to be So give the child the crucial information that they need. This is a room that we've set aside for you. This room is only for you. This is your space. I mean, I'm just giving possible examples. Right here is a bathroom that you can use anytime. You can come in and out of this room. Here's a couple things that I have put here for you. But if you could let me know right away if there's anything that you need. We're happy to have you bring food into this bedroom. We're happy, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever the, the, those are the immediate things that that child is looking for. Some of those ground level needs, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, uh-huh. if you're familiar with that theory. It's so interesting to think about that there. I'm just thinking about like having a house guest, right? You wouldn't necessarily have to describe like, this is your room and what that means. There's an understanding, right? And here's the bathroom and they know, oh, I can go to, but What you're talking about here is like really paying attention to what might be there for this child who's been in all kinds of situations and doesn't know. I actually have the freedom in this place to claim this as my own, to use this when I need to. Yeah, I'm I'm struck by what you're saying there. I think there are a couple different things to draw on from more typical experience. You can think Mm -hmm. about a house guest and you can also think about a much smaller child. Mm. We actually you sometimes give those instructions. If you walked into a new setting with a very young child, you, in fact, without even meaning to, you would probably begin to transmit a bunch of information <laughs> about what could be done and what couldn't be done and what you could offer, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the second thing that I would say there beyond that kind of very concrete, very simple kinds of interaction mm-hmm. and information would, again, and this is, I can almost say this as a blanket statement, would be to keep those early interactions low key, Uh, to step back, to make a lot of room for that child to be thrilled to be there and be sort of giddy in their first moments, to be extremely withdrawn 
to to sort of do what they need to do. Yeah. As a, as you know, an intentional act. Oh yeah. I'm going to sit back with my reactions and feelings, et cetera, and try to do you know what's kind of the heart of hospitality, yeah. which is make room for another person, make some space for another person to unclench their teeth and relax and and try to find literally almost get their feet underneath them. My goodness, it sounds like you were well-formed and well-trained by this to parent teenagers. That sounds like very much the sort of stuff you really ought to do as a parent for a teenager. That makes a lot of sense. We just have a couple of minutes left, Holly, and I, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which was that this challenge to, especially to foster care, which is a demanding call, but a central call for Christians, something like this, is individual, but it's also communal. And I want to if, if you could just for a minute or so kind of talk a little bit more about that, like what would a culture of foster care mean for a community or call forth from a community? Yeah. So I'm so happy that you raised that point because I believe that strongly. Mm-hmm. And it was actually one of the primary motivations for me to write this essay, extrapolating a little bit from some of the things that I said earlier about the way that individual families benefit from mm-hmm. connection community and so on, you can see pretty easily how one thing that would make a lot of sense would be if you had such an extended community to see three families in that community step into foster care together and then think about possibly mentoring other families who might be interested in doing that, about sharing resources and information, of course, with the whole world now via the internet, but also with each other. So just one concrete example here. In most states, when someone becomes licensed to foster through a series of requirements, including a background check and so Mm -hmm. on, They have a higher level of freedom. When I was a foster parent, it was very easy for me without worry to leave my child with someone who was licensed to foster. Mm. Although it was less easy, especially at that time, to leave my child with just anybody. So if you start to think about that and just multiply it, you can see how valuable it would be to have connected households, families or households who are jumping into this thing together. Yeah. And if we extrapolate further to other possibilities, neighborhoods and parishes, when I think about the potential for a, a social gathering like a parish to do that together, to have large numbers of people who know exactly why, for example, this particular child might have a really hard time sitting yeah. through mass, who might be able to see clearly what's going on in the lives of foster families. Because I can say that's not something that foster families always have. People who go to church and go to the grocery store face a whole new set of challenges in those public spaces to try to handle, for example, difficult behaviors. So I really want to offer that vision, again, to anybody who's connected to a collective extended family parish. What would it look like if you can identify one other person, two other households, to start discerning together, maybe start praying together about whether that is a corporate call. And again, I think we really need to think about vocation communally as well as... This brings us back, I suppose, to where we started thinking about that witness of the early Christians, that one of the four marks of the early Christian community, as we hear about in Acts 2, is that they shared all things in common, that the needs of some were the needs of the community, in fact. So you're presenting to us, which I just am so... I cherish what you're saying, this vision of claiming that Christian identity now in a corporate way, in a communal way. 
My guest today has been Holly Taylor Kuhlman. We've been discussing especially her essay that appeared in the Church Life Journal in February of 2020. The title of the essay is Amidst Plagues, The Church's Call to Foster Care and More. Holly, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.